At Emory University's Guizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. And in an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Guizueta Effect. Hi, I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Guizueta Business School, and your host. Today I'll be joined by Wesley Longhofer and Danny Dong. We'll unpack the role business plays as it seeks to innovate and address the grand challenge of climate change. The time for business to act is now. The past eight years have been the warmest on record. Sea levels are rising twice as fast as they were three decades ago. And last year alone, there were 10 climate-related disasters, causing millions of people to be displaced and damages exceeding $3 billion. Wesley Longhofer is an associate professor of organization and management and the executive academic director of the Business and Society Institute at Guizueta. His work on climate change has been funded by the National Science Foundation and featured in the Washington Post and Nature. His most recent co-authored book, Super Polluters, targeting the world's largest sites of climate disrupting emissions, was published by Columbia University Press in 2020. Wes is also a member of the recently launched Emory Climate Research Initiative. Danny is a dual degree student at Emory pursuing her MBA and MSPH at Guizueta Business School and Rollins School of Public Health. Danny is a passionate activist working to tackle climate change through public-private partnerships. She has worked with several governmental agencies, including the Atlanta Housing Authority, Environmental Protection Agency, and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Danny recently attended the United Nations Climate Conference in Egypt as a student ambassador with Emory Climate Talks. Welcome, Wes, and welcome, Danny. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Melanie. So when it comes to climate solutions, we often hear about the circular economy. Can you explain what the circular economy is and describe a few companies that are doing this really well? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea of circular economy came about as an alternative to the traditional take, make, and waste model, where resources are extracted from the earth and made into a product that can be difficult to repair or recycle. In a circular economy, products and systems are designed to maximize efficiency and minimize planned obsolescence. This practice can be implemented in virtually every sector and industry, and we certainly see specific companies that are doing this successfully. A very well-known example is Patagonia. The company creates high-quality and durable apparel using recycled and organic materials, and they offer a take-back program where customers can return used clothing in exchange for store credit. Patagonia then resells or recycles the pieces. Another example in the electronics industry is Fairphone. This company is designing modular smartphones which allow consumers to replace individual components in their phones when pieces break or they become outdated. This is obviously a huge shift from the current smartphone landscape where customers are forced to buy an entire new phone anytime they want to upgrade features. And what stands out to me is that these circular strategies not only benefit our planet, but they also create stickiness with customers and increases a company's competitive advantage. 
Absolutely. I could see how um, those sort of models would introduce a certain loyalty um, to want to come back and keep buying products. Um, So when talking about climate change, we also hear about a shift and focus from shareholders to valuing multi-stakeholders. Former Unilever CEO Paul Pullman champions this shift in his new book, Net Positive. Why is this shift from a shareholder mentality to taking a multi-stakeholder approach a priority for many companies right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Businesses today are recognizing that focusing solely on short-term shareholder returns is not the path to long-term success. The multi-stakeholder approach acknowledges the importance of considering the interests of all parties affected by a company's actions. This includes the employees, the customers, suppliers, communities, and the environment. And I think the last two, the environment and communities, are often overlooked as key stakeholders because they don't always show up directly on the P&L. Companies operate within the context of local and global communities, and these communities provide the infrastructure and the talent that businesses need to thrive. In his book, Paul Pullman argues that companies should create more value for society than they extract, otherwise known as a net positive. Communities are using their voices and their purchasing power to demand that companies regard net positive as a metric of success alongside traditional metrics like profit and shareholder returns. We also often forget about the environment as a stakeholder because it can't speak in a traditional voice. I would argue, though, that the message is loud and clear every time we turn on the TV and see millions of people displaced from flash floods in Pakistan or the food security crisis in eastern Africa triggered by the region's longest recorded drought. As climate change progresses, every company in every sector around the world will feel its impact. It was reported that between 2010 and 2020, natural disasters triggered by climate change resulted in approximately $3 trillion worth of economic losses. Companies are shoring up against these risks by taking a multi-stakeholder approach and leveraging that rich expertise. And Melanie, I think it's also important to remember that um, the idea of a stakeholder is hardly a new idea, right? This idea goes back to the 1970s along with the idea of a shareholder. Um, but I think our recent experiences with the pandemic, climate change, rising inequality, attacks on our democracy have put a spotlight on that idea and that maybe there is a different way to do business. And it's also important to recognize that your shareholders are also an important stakeholder and they also have varied interests and they're also becoming more increasingly concerned with climate risk. And you see that in the growth of the ESG movement. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about this later, but I would imagine focusing on a multi-stakeholder approach could also have pretty positive benefits for recruiting talented employees. Um, You know, I've I've met and talked with a lot of your generation, Danny, who's coming up and going to be the leaders of in the business world very soon, and um, it seems to be such an important issue for. that your generation specifically, and I think folks would want to get involved with an organization that saw it as an important issue too. Absolutely. Um, personally, during my recruiting season, that was a important question that I asked almost every person that I coffee chatted with. What are the sustainable initiatives that your company is pursuing? Have you been involved with them? And where is the investment coming from? So companies are really needing to put their money where their mouth is um, and 
be able to show up in a way that is beyond greenwashing and actually take climate action. So, Danny, in addition to attending the United Nations conference in Egypt, you also recently went to Climate Cap in Austin. And when you were there, you heard from businesses across a range of industries. What areas of innovation do these companies find most promising from a technological and business model perspective? Yeah, so I've seen a lot of excitement around green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is produced from renewable energy sources such as wind or solar, and it can be used as fuel for transportation and heating. With water vapor as its only byproduct, it's an attractive option for companies looking to reduce their carbon footprint. And companies are putting money where their footprint is. Siemens Energy is expected to invest $3.4 billion in hydrogen technologies by 2025 and develop their own hydrogen production facilities. Next Era Energy plans to reach real zero by 2045 without the help of offsets through green hydrogen. So at Climate Cap, I had the opportunity to hear the CEO of Next Era Energy, Rebecca Kujawa, talk about those company commitments to reach zero emissions. And she also noted that widespread adoption needs to occur in order to bring the cost down and compete with natural gas. The other area that is receiving attention is the shift from offshoring to U.S. domestic production. The pandemic really opened our eyes to the weak links in our supply chains, in particular our reliance on offshore manufacturing. This prompted the passage of the CHIPS Act, which focuses primarily on semiconductor manufacturing, but it also spurred other industries to consider bringing operations closer to home. A shift to onshoring could significantly decrease emissions from maritime and aviation shipping, which currently accounts for more than 20% of global emissions. So what about um, the role of government? Obviously, government is a critical part of creating a climate-smart economy. How have recent federal government investments and regulations, including the newly proposed SEC rule, contributed to advancing climate-smart actions in the private sector? Uh, well, I'm a big fan of government and public policy, which is not always a commonly shared um, opinion um, in a business school. But look, government's important for a lot of reasons. At a fundamental level, it provides the regulatory mechanism to enforce and act upon climate disclosures, but it also has a lot to do with spurring private investment through setting ambitious policy goals. So take something like the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRA provides $370 billion in investment to help address the climate crisis through new projects to increase electric vehicle charging and home electrification, boost domestic manufacturing of solar panels, wind turbines, and batteries, revise clean energy tax credits for renewables. They're technology neutral, so it doesn't matter if you use uh, nuclear or wind, geothermal or solar, and $3 billion in block grants for environmental justice, which will help communities monitor and remediate things like heat islands and engage in local policymaking. This type of policy agenda is essential to address the climate crisis, right? It can provide the incentives needed to spark private investment and innovation, and it also helps to reduce some of the risk for companies by giving them a longer time horizon. For example, the IRA will extend clean energy tax credits for an unprecedented 10 years, right? And what that's going to do is give investors and utilities more confidence to invest in clean energy facilities and projects that may not come online until the 2030s. Economist Mariana Mazzucato has written a lot about how we need this kind of what she calls a mission economy, in which government helps to set ambitious policy goals that help to coordinate massive public and private partnerships toward that goal. And I think the IRA has the potential to be the closest thing we have to that kind of mission economy idea. 
In terms of reporting, uh, both the SEC and the EU are considering new ESG reporting requirements. So let's take the proposed SEC rule. The SEC has proposed a rule that requires publicly traded companies to disclose their carbon emissions, as well as details on how climate risks are affecting their business, whether they use things like an internal carbon price and any goals that they have with regard to uh, climate change. The argument in favor of such disclosures is that this is no different than other material things that corporations are required to disclose, like their annual revenue. If climate risk is material to your business, then you should disclose it. If it's not, then just say it's not. Not surprisingly, though, there's been a lot of pushback. So the SEC is currently weighing whether to scale back that rule. And these kinds of reporting requirements are important, right, because they provide investors in those companies with more information to help them make sound investment decisions. But they also standardize and streamline climate risk reporting, which is currently a mix of voluntary and mandatory disclosures, as well as a bunch of third-party assessments of varying quality. Um, but government's also important because it's accountable in a way that, frankly, most companies are not. After all, that's where democracy happens. That's why when I get asked by my students what's the one thing they can do to address the climate crisis, the first thing I tell them is to vote. Well, you talked a little bit about um, social justice and climate, um, which must be part of, of all of our climate strategies. So how are companies integrating social justice into their approaches? And what do business leaders need to be thinking about when it comes to social justice? Sure. So um, climate justice refers to solutions that address the disproportionate costs that vulnerable populations face due to climate change. In other words, it calls attention to the ways in which climate change impacts inequities tied to gender, race, class, nation, ethnicity, and so on. It also refers to the need to ensure that any transition to a low carbon or zero carbon economy is also an inclusive one. Uh, groups like Business Fights Poverty and B-Lab, which is the organization that certifies B corporations, have done a lot of work to develop frameworks on how climate justice matters for business. This includes embedding human rights in your supply chain, sharing burdens and benefits from an energy transition fairly, being transparent and accountable in your climate commitments, co-designing climate solutions with communities affected by your business, and investing in developing climate smart skills throughout your entire value chain. Um, one example of a company that's done a lot to address climate justice is Patagonia. It's a company we always go to. Uh, for a long time, they've been they've directly funded organizations working on climate justice, democracy, biodiversity, and the environmental challenges impacting indigenous communities. They've also advocated for policy change and produced films that call attention to indigenous environmental struggles around the world. And most recently, its founder, Yvon Chouinard, gave away all non-voting stock in the $3 billion company to a collective that will use all non-reinvested profits to fight climate change. So it gives you a sense of how a business approach to addressing climate justice requires reimagining the purpose of business itself. Um, but let's be honest, climate justice is not something that many companies are really thinking about. You see issues of climate justice come up all the time. You can see it in recent conflicts over proposed renewable energy projects, like the Lava Ridge Wind Farm in Idaho. It's not only cattle ranchers who are concerned about the project's potential disruptions to native grass that are concerned. As NPR reported last month, the wind farm is also near the site of a former Japanese internment camp whose constituency worries that turbines may disrupt their ability to recognize and mourn the injustices of the past. Um, similarly, one of our most important climate activists, Greta Thunberg, has protested a wind farm in Norway because it's on the land of the indigenous Sami group who fear the project will disrupt their reindeer herds. I bring this up because we have to recognize that important solutions to the climate crisis like renewable energy may bring their own costs as well. And we can only see that if we adopt a justice perspective. And it's important to hear the real pain that climate change has caused, already caused, for so many communities around the world. And so a big part of a climate justice framework for business is empathy.
That's a great point, Wes. And I want to just put a spotlight also on the health impacts of climate change, which I think further emphasizes the importance of adopting a people-centered approach, like you mentioned. While achieving net zero carbon emissions is a top priority for business leaders, it's essential to recognize that carbon is just one part of the story. Air pollution claims the lives of approximately 7 million people each year, and PM2.5, the pollutant that is released during fuel combustion, is the main culprit. Carbon capture and sequestration has gained a lot of traction as a viable strategy for mitigating the release of carbon into the atmosphere, but unfortunately, it doesn't address PM2.5 emissions. As a result, local communities may continue to suffer from issues like chronic asthma and lung cancer. So I want to underscore that corporate sustainability is not just about decarbonization. Business leaders will need to take a look at how their actions are impacting people at a systemic level. After all, healthy populations are the cornerstone of thriving economies. So when it comes to addressing the climate crisis, technological innovation is often touted as a key solution. But is it really as straightforward as just developing and scaling up new technologies? What are the limitations and risks associated with relying on technological breakthroughs? Since the beginning of human existence, innovation and our ability to adapt have been critical components of our survival and progress. Innovation has increased lifespans and spurred globalization. It's what has allowed us to be sitting here today talking about this. However, as we face the urgent challenge of climate change, it's becoming increasingly clear that innovation alone may not be enough to address the scale of this problem. Let's take electric vehicles. When first introduced, electric vehicles were touted as the golden ticket to zero emissions in the transportation sector. The reality, though, is more complicated. Putting aside the environmental impact of mining rare earth materials, electric vehicles require more electricity to manufacture. And of course, they rely on electricity to run. But where is that electricity coming from? Fossil fuels still account for 60% of the electricity generated in the U.S., Many life cycle analyses have shown that electric vehicles are only a greener alternative to internal combustion vehicles if the vehicle is produced and driven in an area that offers clean electricity. That's to say, the effectiveness of green technology hinges upon a decarbonized grid. Currently, 73% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the energy sector, which also means there's an enormous potential for change. Scaling existing technology around solar, wind, and hydropower while simultaneously phasing out coal-fired power plants is key. Widespread rollout of real-time dynamic pricing for electricity is also a way to encourage low-carbon behavior while reducing operating costs. With traditional block pricing, prices remain constant irrespective of demand. Real-time pricing encourages people to use power when renewable energy is abundant and conserve when it's not. And utility companies can see the benefit through improvements in efficiency due to decreases in the required capacity to fulfill peak demand. A common argument from those who are skeptical of climate investment is that sustainable business models will hinder growth. What are your thoughts on that? I understand where that concern comes from, but there's a growing body of evidence that shows sustainable business models can actually drive growth. 
Sustainable business practices often involve implementing resource and energy efficient processes, which can lead to cost reductions. One example is Project Gigaton, an initiative by Walmart to reduce 1 billion metric tons of scope 3 emissions from their supply chain by 2030. In 2005, Walmart doubled the efficiency of their U.S. truck fleet and recorded almost $1 billion in cost savings annually. They haven't yet published their cost savings for Project Gigaton, but the outlook is good. Investors are also increasingly considering ESG factors when making investment decisions. Companies with strong sustainability performance can attract more investment and secure better financing terms. In 2020, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, issued $5.75 billion in sustainability bonds, and they did this with record low coupon rates. This allowed Alphabet to access cheap capital while growing their ESG offerings. So I would argue that sustainable business models actually accelerate growth. And I think it's true that, um, look, there is a lot of aggregate confusion in the ESG space right now, and all the political nonsense around ESG doesn't help. One number that gets mentioned a lot is $35 trillion. That's the supposed amount of managed assets that are currently that currently take into account ESG considerations, which would be a third of all global assets under management. Some estimate that will be as high as $53 trillion by 2025. McKinsey also estimates that climate-oriented equity transactions in private markets increased more than two and a half times from 2019 to 2022 to about $196 billion, whereas the overall private market equity market declined by 24% over the same period. The market for climate tech is estimated to be somewhere around $2 trillion. So that's a lot of action for something that is supposedly hindering growth. But climate change also poses a lot of risk. So there was a 2019 KMPG, uh, KMPG report that found that over 75% of CEOs said that their company's growth was dependent on shifting to a low-carbon, clean-energy economy. And there's also a lot of strong empirical evidence that ESG is positively associated with financial performance. A 2015 review of more than 2,000 empirical studies of ESG and financial performance found that the vast majority found a positive relationship. And that relationship is just going to get clearer as measures and reporting of material climate risk continue to crystallize. Well, Wes, let's talk a little bit about uh, education. So you're the academic director of the Business and Society Institute at Guisweta, and business schools play an important role in preparing students to lead in this space. So why is innovation in business education important for climate change, and what does that innovation look like, and how can business schools really keep up with the fast pace of change in emerging climate fields? So part of this has to do with working with what we already have and embed a deeper understanding of climate science and climate awareness into them. Uh, this includes introducing concepts like circular economies, carbon markets, carbon reporting, and climate strategy into the existing core curriculum. The Business Schools for Climate Leadership Initiative is a consortium of eight European business schools that's trying to do exactly this. They make the case that business schools are experts in things like business transformation, measuring performance, and organizational leadership. Uh, thus, as business schools are well positioned to address climate change. But doing so, I think, means going beyond simply offering a class in climate science. It also means reimagining business education itself. Um, climate change requires urgent action for long-term benefit. So business schools need to consider alternative models of education as well, such as specialized degrees or workshops for professionals tailored to specific climate issues, such as climate and blockchain or new SEC reporting requirements. But it also requires business schools to work together which is not an easy task given that we face so many competitive pressures. So one of the things I'm most excited about is the announcement from Columbia Business School's dean last year about their decision to open source their climate curriculum so that other business schools can contribute to it and learn from it. 
Um, I also think climate change could be a way for business schools to resolve these sort of longstanding tensions between delivering the skills that future business leaders need while also asking the bigger, kind of more existential and humanistic questions about the purpose of business itself. But th these are uncomfortable conversations, right, for business schools, as they ultimately are questions about values. And as such, they invite us to also question and interrogate the very frameworks and models that we take for granted, like shareholder value or capitalism itself, to see if there are more sustainable versions of business that might be a better fit with our values. But I wonder if business schools can actually feed two birds with one scone. One argument I've been making recently is that business schools need a moonshot. That is an ambitious goal with unspecified risks and benefits to deal with things like declining enrollments and shifts in what a new generation of business students want from a business education. And that moonshot could be to address the climate crisis. Addressing the climate crisis requires us to transition our entire economy toward a net zero and regenerative one. And business schools can help us do that. No other issue or challenge of our time, with the possible exception of digital technology, creates systemic risk for all aspects of business while also generating just enormous opportunities for growth and innovation. But growth and innovation that saves our planet rather than comes at the expense of it. But it requires business schools to get creative in how we educate business students, how we reward faculty for their research, and how we engage with the business community. So Wes, what do employers need to know about this generation of business school students like Danny? And how can workplaces leverage their energy and their passion? So I do think that climate change is becoming table stakes for many of my business students. Every year I ask my students to write two letters, one to me and one to their future selves, both of which discuss their thoughts on the most pressing social challenge facing business. And each year, more and more students mention climate change as a real source of concern and for many, a real source of anxiety. And there is always going to be this contingent that feels the only way to address climate change is to dismantle the entire system altogether. And I hear that argument, uh, but there's a far larger number of students today who take a different, arguably more pragmatic approach to creating positive change. They've not yet given up on creating systemic change from within a system. But they're also more willing to speak up for their concerns, especially when it comes to climate change, and call out companies they feel are not living up to the challenge. For example, in 2021, more than 1,000 McKinsey consultants signed an open letter imploring the company to stop consulting the top polluting companies. And not surprisingly, the CEO of BCG called for climate activists to join BCG around the same time. So for companies, it's going to be essential to be transparent in your climate commitments and engage your young talent in setting and meeting those commitments. But living up to those commitments is also going to require working with other businesses, governments, and civil society to collectively solve the biggest challenge of our time. And I think our graduating students can help you get there. And to my students, I feel confident that employers are changing too. I've lost count of the number of alums who have reached out in the past two years because they are put on ESG-related projects much sooner than they ever anticipated. And while I know there are very real concerns about companies cutting back over the next few months and recent announcements about layoffs, a number of tech firms speak to this, I do think that investments made in ESG are here to stay for most companies due to the reporting requirements and other changes that we discussed earlier. It's certainly good to hear that there are a strong contingent of Emory students that are engaging in ESG pro projects, um, particularly as I'm entering the workforce and looking for those opportunities. Um, I'm happy to know that there's the, the full strength of Emory behind me. Wes Longhofer is the Executive Academic Director of the Business and Society Institute at Guisueta. Danny Dong is a passionate activist and dual degree student here at Emory. They join today to discuss innovations in business to drive a more climate smart world. Thanks to you both. 
Thanks, Melanie. Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure. For more information about the Guizueta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast.